0: Uh, please stand as you are able for the reading of God's Word. The reading for today is from 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1-13. to 13. Um, The text will be on the screen as I read. Now, about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know, but whoever loves God is known by God. So then about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live." but not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a God, and since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights do not become a stumbling block to the weak. For someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I not cause them to fall. This is God's word. You may be seated.
1: Good morning, church. My name is uh, Brian. I'm one of the pastors here, if I've never met you before. First item in business, kids uh, up through second grade, you're dismissed for children's church. And they will be heading uh, along with uh, older kids to the Fellowship Hall after the message to do some choir practice uh, that they'll be singing some songs for us on Palm Sunday. Uh, If you're just joining us, we're in a sermon series on 1 Corinthians. We're just getting into the the heat of it. We just finished a section that covered a bunch of topics like sex and body and marriage and singleness. And if you're waiting for a break from the intensity of those topics, this is the pivot that uh, Paul is now making in the letter of 1 Corinthians to a different topic that stretches uh, from this chapter, chapter 8, about to the end of chapter 10. So that's where we're at in First Corinthians. Let's go ahead and pray and dive into the text today. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this gathering of saints. Thank you that your spirit is at work in their life in such a way that they are gathering in this place to be with your people, to be reminded of the gospel, to be transformed by your grace, to meet at this table, and to pray for our city. Lord, right now we quiet our hearts for your word so that truth and love and grace can be spoken into our lives again, because throughout the week we're bombarded by other messages that lack all those things. So help us, Lord, to be transformed again by your powerful word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What would it take for you to be vegan? What would it take for me to be vegan? Let me, let me be a little transparent with you. And if you're vegan here, you're vegetarian, uh, I love you. You're more sanctified than me. But let me tell you a little story to put this into perspective uh, of how difficult such a question would be for me. Now, there's two restaurants by uh, my house. It's over on Victoria and Selby, and they share the same building. They're different restaurants, different ownership, but they're in the same building. One of them is a vegan restaurant, and there you can go and you can order wings that are made out of beer-battered cauliflower, or you could have a Philly without meat and without real cheese, or they have a burger called the, quote, Dirty Secret, and it's their take on a Big Mac. So since it's vegan, this is how they describe their Big Mac. It's two non-beef patties, special sauce, lettuce, cheese spelt with a Z because it's not real cheese, pickled and onions on a toasted sesame bun. Mmm, you can drop like 20 bucks on that thing, right? Or you could go next door in the same building, and this is a place that's the polar opposite. It is almost offensively opposite of a vegan restaurant. It's a place with burgers, burritos, and hot dogs, all made with dead animals, right? It's that place. And they don't only just do burgers, but they do burgers, and on top of the burger, they put a Cubano on the burger, so you get like the two-in-one there. Or you can go there and get a hot dog, but not just a hot dog, but a hot dog wrapped in bacon right? That's the type of place that I'm talking about. This is the type of restaurant that breaks at least two Old Testament laws with each sandwich they make, okay? That's, and they're right next door, same building, different ownership, but they're right there, and if I had to choose between the two restaurants, I am on team meat. It would take a miracle, a mild miracle, the power that raised Jesus from the dead to get me to eat at the vegan restaurant. If I wanted to be vegan, I wouldn't pay money for it. i go home, buy some cheap kale, chew on it, and feel sad. Okay? (laughs) That's what I would do, right? I would do that rather than go to a vegan restaurant. Now, what's surprising about today's passage is Paul gets to the end of this big theological argument, and he essentially says, I kid you not, I'm not exaggerating, I would rather be vegetarian or vegan than eat meat for the sake of something else. And I'm just like, this is getting my attention, right? Because like I said, of vegan folks in here. You're more sanctified than me. I'm just not there yet. I can't do this. So it's like you hear an argument like this where you're willing to give up something that you love so much, love to go out and have burgers and hot dogs or whatever. That's the type of thing I'm going to drop money on. So he's presenting an argument that you should, as a Christian, be willing to lay something like that aside, become something that you think would be just crazy to become because you'd have to sacrifice so much of life's pleasures to do it. You should be willing to do that for the sake of others and the gospel. That's the argument he's about to present. So, this is how he's going to do it. He's moving on from the previous issues I already mentioned to this issue of food sacrificed to idols. And there's a division in the local church because this is a hot topic. And essentially what happened is people in this church emailed him, well, figuratively speaking, wrote him a letter that said, we're divided on this issue. What should we do about food sacrificed to idols in the temple? And he's like, What is? And they're they're asking, What is your take on this? Tell us your opinion. Whose side are you on? This would be like writing to your pastor. What's your opinion about masks? And can you give a sermon about it? All right, it's a hot topic that Christians are dividing against one another, and it's getting messy. And his answer in this debate isn't simple, but just like previous chapters and previous things that he's written. It has nuance, pastoral sensitivity, and it's deeply theological. And he's going to be dealing with this issue all the way through chapter 10. So let's get to chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. Let's start there. Now about food sacrificed to idols. We know that we all possess knowledge. But knowledge puffs up, while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know but whoever loves God is known by God. So that's the topic, food sacrificed to idols. So the background to understand the controversy would be helpful. There are meetings that would happen in these pagan temples where this church was planted in Corinth, and it was really common to go there, not just worship, but you have to think about this pagan temple kind of like a community center, an event center, a rec center, that also had an element of worship in there as well. So you would not only go there to worship, but you could rent out space, uh, as it were, like you would around here, to have birthday parties or promotion celebration, or to have some type of party or event, And you would have it at the temple. It would function as a social event center. And in the city of Corinth, it was very much the center of social life. And so, what would happen there, because religion and the spirituality was so mixed with social life, is that you would be having, you know, going there for your friend's birthday party. And one of the things that would happen is a sacrifice would happen and you would sacrifice an animal to the gods, and then you would take a portion of that, give it to the gods, and they take the other portion and feed your guests. And the thought there is that at these events, at these social gatherings, it wasn't just people that were gathering, but you were inviting the gods to be a part of it. Now, the debate is, can I go there as a Christian? That's the controversy, and one group of Christians in this church in Corinth says that it shouldn't be an issue going there and eating this meat at the temple that's sacrificed to gods and to attend these social events. After all, if people are in the know, they would realize that these gods aren't even real. There's only one god, creator of heaven and earth. These gods are fake. Idols have no power. And and you can go there if you have the strength to know these things and know that it doesn't matter if you eat this meat. It's just meat, and these gods are fake. So people that don't get this and see this, those folks are weak. They don't have the knowledge that the rest of us have. That's essentially the background. So Paul goes on and he's addressing these specifics, uh, but before he gets there, in these opening verses, it's weird he talks about love and knowledge. He doesn't even get to the issue he doesn't say well here's my opinion he just backs all the way up and says knowledge puffs up but love builds up he says that knowledge puffs up it can cause somebody to be arrogant and prideful and the impact of knowledge and our pride is a common experience that we have Have you ever had the experience where you read a piece or or heard something on the news or listened to a podcast, and you're like, this is it. This explains everything that, that I need to know about this controversial issue, this complex issue about like COVID policies or politics or the war in Ukraine, and it just puts it all into perspective. And you can't wait to share it with somebody else because those ignorant folks need to know that this knowledge, this truth that I just learned, this is the stuff that these weak people need to understand. Uh, my wife and I got to go to uh, see a comedian last night, and he was talking about this reality. That, that He talks about the common experience, and maybe some of you have this, where you're on a text thread with family. You have aunts and uncles, moms and dads, grandpas in there. And most likely, uh, it's a pretty diverse crowd. It's the type of diverse crowd, because you know what happens at Thanksgiving and Christmas when you talk about some of these things, or if you were to share the article that you just wrote, read, it would make people upset. And sometimes he's like, and he was saying as a comedian, that he just drops things in there just to cause a stir. He'd be like, well, this article says N95 masks are very, very effective, and I'm going to Drop it in there and see what Uncle Frank does with that one, right? And this article says cloth masks. They are worthless. I'm going to drop that, that one in there and see what Aunt Barb says about that, right? And you're taking knowledge and you're doing it because to, to cause division, to prey on the, who you would say are weak-minded people, and it's puffing you up. You're not sharing these things in order to build up. You're sharing these things to stir people up, to cause division. That's what knowledge is like without love. Knowledge without love puffs up because the purpose of love is to build people up, not to make you feel better about yourself. And, and what's interesting here is Paul has even given them the benefit out. Even if you're right about this, you can still be very, very wrong in how you walk as a Christian with how you approach knowledge and share knowledge. Paul is saying that such knowledge is only partial. You may know something that is subjectively true and be puffed up, and love does not do that. He makes his point by saying, whoever loves God is known by God. This phrase is a little bit different than saying, if you love God, then you truly know God. That's true. To love God is to know God, but Paul is not making that point. He's making a different point. He says, whoever loves God is known by God. It's a similar point that the Apostle John makes in his letters when it says that you love God because what? He first loved you. Here Paul is saying you love God because he first knew you. God initiated this relationship. That's the point Paul's making. Before we ever loved God, God knew us first. He redeemed us and revealed himself to us in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's the theology that he's grounding his point in. Love does not puff up because in God's love in Christ, you see that it's for the sake of others. God is love, and he expresses that love by saving sinners, building us up in Christ, and bringing us together in unity. Christians also love, therefore, by building others up. So now Paul will show us how these beliefs in their head are still very, very off because they're not ordered towards building others up. Look at verses 4 through 6. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, whom from whom all things came, and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came, and through whom we live. So Paul here is quoting common ground that he has with those in the know. It's true, and we know that idols are worthless. They have no real power because there is only one God. Paul agrees with that. There is no real God that gives these idols power or any sort of authority because there's only one Lord and one God. But then Paul broadens it from that kind of basic confession and makes it more distinctively Christian and much more thick and dripping with the gospel. He confesses that there is one God, the Father, from whom all things come, and we are to live for him. And there is one Lord Jesus Christ through, all th- through whom all things came and through whom we live. In other words, Christians have all things through God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore we live for him and him alone. And he's essentially ta- starting to lay this framework. He's saying, do you think you know something, those of you that think you are strong? Well, if you do, it's from God. You love God? That's because God initiated it, and he knew you before you even knew anything. So therefore, in humility and based on the love of God and his knowledge of you, obey him. So that's Paul's common ground, but he broadens it in a more distinctively Christian way for those that are in the know. And then he says this in verse 7. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled." So those who think of themselves as strong and free and knowledgeable say, hey, we all possess this knowledge. Everybody knows this, or they ought to, and Paul pushes back. He says not everyone possesses this knowledge. That is, what Paul is saying is not everyone is at the point where going to the temple filled with idols and eating meat sacrificed to these idols are okay. They're not in that place yet. They're not comfortable with that. Their conscience isn't there. It isn't at the same conviction so that they can go to these social events with these other Christians and be able to participate in a way where they're free to do so and it doesn't damage their conscience. After all, some of these people those that are weak identified as weak here are those that just came from those environments maybe they were just converted to the lord they just came became christians and so all they know about that place is they were in under the 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 viewpoint that these gods are real and they have power And they had power over me before Christ conquered them and brought me to the true and living God. And so that is so fresh for them that for them to go back there and to participate in these things would be bad. And one of the things I think Paul is saying here to us in, in any moment, all right, and we're not dealing with food sacrifice to idols. But one of the things you need to understand, if you even have a position on something, and you you know, let's, let's just say it for the sake, whatever you're thinking in my he- in your head on the position you hold, we'll just say you're right. You're probably not all right. We'll just say you're right for the the sake of argument. And you know that there are these other people. They're weak they're wrong because they have a different uh, understanding about COVID policies and, and different understanding about politics and, and maybe even theological matters, right? And, if they, and these people, they're just, they're just not there yet. They're not in the know. They're not enlightened like you are, right? One of the things that Paul is saying here is chill. People are in process. Be patient with them as God is with you. Consider where they came from, their story their background? Why is this such a struggle? And just pump the brakes a little bit on this issue, whatever it might be. Verses 8 through 9, Paul writes, but food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. In verse 8 here, Paul states again something he agrees with, with those that are in the know, with those that consider themselves to be strong. He says, food eaten in religious customs of any faith does not bring us necessarily closer to God. But then he says the reverse is true as well. It doesn't bring you farther away either. If you don't eat this food, then you are not falling away from the Lord. If you do eat the food, then you're not drawing closer to the Lord. This is a similar point if you've been following 1 Corinthians that he made back in 1 Corinthians 7, and he highlighted it with the issue of circumcision. Whether to be circumcised or uncircumcised was a big debate in this church too. Do Gentiles need to get circumcised, that is to embrace Jewish religious customs, to be closer to God, or is it better for Jewish people to turn away from these customs to be closer to God? That was another hot debate. Paul said back in 1 Corinthians 7:19 that circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Same principle he's starting to apply here. What food you eat isn't going to make you better or worse religiously. If in your freedom you decide to eat meat sacrificed to your idol, you're no better for doing it. If you refrain from eating this meat, then you are no worse off. Right? That's what he is saying here. However, Paul is going to go on and say how you practice this in community, how you go about this, does matter. Eating this food or not eating this food is, 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 is not the point. But keeping the command to love your brother and sister in Christ, however, that's what counts. Not your opinion or your knowledge about this issue, but loving your brother and sister in Christ, that's what counts. And that's why he warns them, be careful that your actions with regard to this issue doesn't cause other people to stumble. Did you see that in verse 9? That your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. Now, this is a point where this verse is often taken out of context, and this is a point where some people would say that any issue that I find offensive is something you need to stop doing because I find it offensive. But you're to see in the following verses that that's not what Paul has in mind. This isn't something that causes offense. It's much more serious than that, all right? Because I, I, I say this because I, I, I went to a Christian college with a lifestyle agreement. You know what those are? I know some of you went to the U of M and some of these other, other colleges where they sacrifice food to idols, but the... <laughs> But the Christian colleges, they'd they be different, guys. They'd be very different than that. You go there and you, you sign a lifestyle agreement. And I was only a couple of years after, after being renewed in the faith and having this conversion experience, and I went to this environment, and I signed on for it. I said, okay, I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to dance. I'm not going to play cards, right? And I would often sometimes meet Christians that say, that would tell you that this is kind of these, these timeless principles that should be applied all the time, that if they see you post-graduation, playing cards or dancing, they say, stop it, because that's offensive to me. You're causing me to stumble. And that is a misapplication of this verse, right? I'm sorry that you're offended by my dancing. I kind of am offended by the way I dance, too. (laughs) all right? That will be redeemed sometime in heaven, all right? You're going to have to get used to some forms of dancing. So some people use this as kind of a power pivot to try to get Christians to do anything that they don't find, uh, that, 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 that they find offensive. That's not what's going on here. But what's at stake isn't Christians getting offended. What's at stake is division in the church and somebody's very salvation and somebody in your community falling away from the Lord because of the way that you use your knowledge. Look at verse 10 with me to see this. Verses 10 through 12. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom... Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. And here Paul gets to the main concern that he has, and it's not about meat. It's about the faith. And the question he gets you to think about this scenario is just like, all right, let's picture this. A new convert just came out of these pagan temple rituals, you used to worship these gods, believe they're real, and they, they turn and now they're, they're believing in Jesus Christ as the only true Lord. But then they see you go back to this temple at the social event. You go to this birthday party. You go to this work promotion party whatever. And part of the deal with how they cater the food is they sacrifice these, this food, uh, this, this animal, and then use some of the food for the gods, use some of the food for the social event, and then invite the gods in there. And they see you there, and they don't have the same framework yet. They're not thinking, oh, these gods aren't real, but no, this, this had power over me. This, this is serious, but these, these Christians, they're going there And it seems to be fine. Well, what's wrong with me? Maybe I need to go there. And they see these so-called strong Christians there strutting their spiritual superiority and looking down their nose at them and say, well, maybe I just need to go. I don't feel like I'm ready yet, but I just need to go. And I need to go back to that former way of life. And now they're starting to step back towards a life where they didn't believe a life where they were under the power of unbelief, and you led them there because of your puffed-up knowledge. Paul says this isn't right, and when you're doing that, when you're leading a weak brother or sister back into the situation where you're leading them away from Christ, you're sinning against the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul doesn't take the position that while these weak Christians, they just need to suck it up and catch up with the knowledge of those who are strong. No, he says to the so called strong who are in the know that if you cause somebody to stumble, you're not only sinning against that person and destroying them, you're also sinning against the Lord, whom Christ died for. That's how he raises the stakes. He says, You're sinning against Christ. And Christ died for this brother and sister. Remember what Romans 5, 6 through 8 says? You see, at just the right time, Paul writes, we were still powerless. You could say we were still weak. And Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, while we were still weak, while we were still powerless, Christ died for us. And one of the points he's making there is to these these Christians that are in the know is that, that Christ died for sinners. That's what he did for those that are weak. And you can't even change your diet. And Christ laid down his life for these brothers and sisters in Christ that you're leading away from the Lord. And Paul says in verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 7, when you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. How do you sin against Christ when you do this against a brother and sister in Christ? Well, Jesus makes the same point in the Gospels where he tells the parable of the the sheep and the goats. And the way he sets up this parable is that Jesus, well, he's the good shepherd who can recognize who his sheep are and also within his flock be able to recognize the goats who need to be separated out. And that's how the king recognizes those who belong to him and those who don't. And one of the ways that the king discerns who belongs to him and those who don't is how do people treat the least of these, which are his people who are hungry, thirsty, and looking for a place to rest. And Jesus says that if you provide and serve the least of these, then the king will welcome you into his kingdom. If you do not, then you, are de- then you will depart from the presence of the king and into judgment. And for those who did not provide for the least of these, they asked the king in Matthew 25, 45 through 40, 44 through 45. They will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in a prison and did not help you? And he will reply, truly I tell you, Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And so when you sin against the least of these, or you cause the weak to go against their conscience, or see a new convert and lead them back to their old ways, then you are not only sinning against that person, the scripture says, you are sinning against Christ himself. And now Paul concludes in verse 13. Therefore, what, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again. There it is. Vegetarian, vegan, whatever. I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. See, Paul is being more radical here than he was at the beginning. He broadens his application. He doesn't say, I will never eat meat sacrificed to idols again. He says, Purposely, meat in general i will i'll i'll stop eating any of it right I I, I will become vegetarian if it means that I will not lead my brother or sister in Christ into sin or back into their old ways or cause division in the church. I'm going to lay aside whatever freedom. It's not wrong to eat this meat, but I'm going to lay it aside for the sake of another. I'm going to lay it aside for the sake of the kingdom of God. I will lay it aside for the sake of unity in the church. And Paul is essentially saying here to the so-called strong and those that are in the know... I will not be eating with you at these temple feasts. Not because I disagree with your principles. I believe you're right. But the way you're going about it is destructive and wrong and divisive. So I'm not going to be joining you at those tables. I'm going to be at the table where there's the weak and the struggling and the new converts and those that are in process and those that are trying to figure it out. The principles that by this time should be very obvious for us. We may be right about something. You might be right about a topic that you feel strongly about, but you can still sin against the church and sin against your brothers and sisters in Christ by how you go about communicating that knowledge. You may have freedom to practice something, but you could still, in your freedom and in your practice, cause somebody else to stumble at best or lose their faith at worst. So, the call of Jesus is to have knowledge that's grounded in love. It's a call to lay aside our freedoms in service for others. It's a call to leave the table of the strong to join with the table of surrounded by the weak, because that's what Christ did. He died for the powerless, which each and every one of us are powerless and weak and the only way that we can ever come to love god is to be known by him first and him initiating that with weak sinners like us and if we worship the god who does this then it doesn't matter what type of knowledge you have about whatever kind of controversial issue is happening today if you go about in a way that divides the church and doesn't love brothers and sisters in christ you are not honoring christ or the gospel This is not a time to separate from one another, but to be patient with one another, build one another up, and ground our faith in love and love only. And that's why we come to this table as weak, powerless sinners. Everyone together. Not separate tables, but this table, because we are grounded and saved by that divine and sovereign love in Christ. Amen, church? Amen. Amen.